0: Hey, praise the Lord. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord this morning. He's worthy of our praise. Hey, you know, that song, in case you don't know it, that Shekinah glory, we're going to be seated. The Shekinah glory of God was actually from the Old Testament where the presence of God literally filled God's temple. The visible presence of God. God manifested Himself. Well, let I me mean, know we're not looking for mysticism in today's world. We're not looking for a spooky experience, but we are looking for the reality of God. Come on, every day of our life. I'm looking for the reality of God in my workplace, in my home. I'm telling you, the one that's alive on Resurrection Sunday is the one that wants to be real every day of our life. Praise the Lord. Amen. Listen, honor to have you today. A lot of wonderful churches in the area you could have gone to. We're just really thrilled that you're here. Easter is always a preacher's favorite weekend. Uh, lots, of, lots of old friends, new friends. Uh, it's especially neat for this preacher. We've had three weekend services. They've been packed, been wonderful time. But uh, it may was better yesterday because uh, turkey season opened yesterday in Arkansas. And uh, I happened to go with a friend and uh, uh, brought one to the pot. But anyway, we are glad you're here. Even my dog celebrated the resurrection Sunday last night. It's a true story. 3.30 in the morning, he's out by my window praising the Lord. I was not pleased at praising the Lord at 3:30, but I did escort him into the mud room and, and talk to him a little bit and tell him that Jesus rose early in the morning, but not this early, huh? <laughs> hey, look in your Bibles this morning. Matthew 28, Matthew 28, without a doubt, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are two of the most celebrated events in the history of the world. Let me say it again, you can't get the world together to do anything, but today, most of the planet is recognizing the resurrection of Christ. Whatever our language is, whatever our color barriers may be, how many know we share a common Savior in the world today? It was because of the crucifixion that a way was made that my sins were paid for. I never understood this as a boy. My mom made me go to church, and nobody said, thank God for moms that make their kids go to church. But I, I didn't really understand the dynamics of the cross. I thought the cross was something you wore on your neck. You put one on the wall. I didn't understand that there was a one day I would face God on Judgment Day, and I would need to have my sins paid for. I mean, well, that's a big deal. It's the Resurrection Sunday that reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is His words that are true. A verse sums it up most beautifully. Romans 4.25 says it this way, that Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and He was raised from the dead to make us right with God. Now, last week we talked about the cross. This morning I'd like to talk to you about the empty tomb, but I want to speak to you more than just history, more than just historical fact, but I want to show you how the Bible can be relevant to the world you live today. I'm going to share something with you that will help you when you leave this church today live a life that's a God-centered life. That when you're, you're facing problems and difficulties in the workplace, that what we're going to share today because of the empty tomb will matter to you. This morning we'll talk about four things. Because the empty tomb is a place where fear turns into faith. The empty tomb is a place where skeptics must pause. The empty tomb is a place where doubters become believers. And the empty tomb is a place where a failure gets a second chance. But before we go into the Bible, we happen to find in some old newsreels, probably the first recorded video, at the tomb of Jesus by a young woman. Her name is Salome. And she's telling us, that's a joke, okay? But she's telling us, in her words, what she probably felt like at the tomb. This is again; it's not just history lesson, but it's how to let the Bible speak to our hearts and the feelings of the people that were there. Take a peek. It's from Mark sixteen. Perhaps the thoughts of Salome. Praise the Lord! I tell your neighbor the secret is out. Matthew twenty-eight. Let's begin there. The empty tomb is a place where fear turns into faith. The empty tomb is a place where fear turns into faith. Matthew 28, it was early on Sunday morning, Matthew's account of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. He rolled aside the stone, and he sat on it. Now look at verse 4. We're going to talk about fear around this tomb. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. And when you think of these Roman soldiers that guarded the tomb, the guard likely 16 soldiers, they were today's equivalent of Navy SEALs. They were the finest army ranger of their day. Uh, the full funny video we saw about the men's breakfast, they were those kind of guys. I mean, they didn't come and wash their hands before they ate. They, they didn't clean the dirt from their fingernails. I mean, they probably had some missing teeth. Or they got knocked out when they chewed tobacco. They spit the tobacco out the hole. I mean, these guys were just, just tough guys. I mean, rugged guys... But they're different from the soldiers that were around the cross. You remember those that were around the cross when they observed Jesus? They said, truly, this was the Son of God. And and all the soldiers there stood in awe. But these men are a picture of the unbeliever. They're a picture of the skeptic, of the man that doesn't need God. And these great, strong, strong men had an anxiety attack that made them pass out. And they had an encounter with the living God. Now, we're going to come back to their fear in a minute because it's a little different than the others' fear. The angel, verse 5, spoke to the women. And what did the angel say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, he said. For I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, and he's not here. He's risen from the dead. And the women ran quickly from the tomb, and they were frightened, but filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. I think we've been just a minute because we're talking about fear being turned into faith. Fear is something that all of us know. They knew it that day. The Roman soldiers knew it. They knew when they had encountered a God that perhaps they didn't know existed or told was not real. The disciples had it. The disciples, the guys, were so afraid they were hiding at home. They had locked the doors. They were scared, and some ladies went out to the tomb. And they, too, when they saw the angel, were frightened. Fear was everywhere. What I want you to see is the pages of the Bible unfold, fear didn't continue its grip on them. I mean, no, they began in a place with fear, but fear quickly left them because the same people that were hiding behind closed doors would, in a few chapters later in the book of Acts, stand up boldly on the day of Pentecost and proclaim Christ to the same world, and ten of these eleven remaining apostles died a martyr's death for Christ. So I'm telling you, friends, as we grapple with fear in life, fear can be turned into faith and we can face our future with faith instead of fear. Now listen, if you have the type of fear, and I think there's two, the the type of Romans, uh, the fear that the Roman soldiers had, I suggest to you embodies the fear of the unbeliever, of the skeptic, of the one who says there is no God and I don't need God. Now, how many know if you've got money in your pocket, if you've got health, if the plastic card is working, if you have a measure of control in your life, if you've got transportation, you don't need God. Now, you do need God. Come on. You need God to keep gravity functioning. You need God to keep aerodynamics functioning as you fly in an airplane. But we live under the illusion that we don't need God. And I suggest to you, that, as the Bible says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, that one day those that have turned their back on Christ, those that have said, we just don't need Him, we're smarter than that, it's mythology that one day they will face God and the veil will be be moved, the veil that separates what we see in the natural from the supernatural, and when you behold the living God believing that He has not been there, my friends, holy fear will come over you. You don't believe a holy fear will come over a person. What do you think they were feeling on that Malaysian airliner when it was, became clear that that airliner was going down? I guarantee you, fear filled that, co- that, that cockpit. Fear filled that airplane. I guarantee you, there was cries of, Oh, God! My friends, there is a, a fear of a holy God for those that don't believe. It should be a healthy fear to lead us to Him. But there's also a fear that all of us fear every day. I, I, I call it a generalized fear. It's a fear of life. These disciples had it because, listen, you'd be stupid not to be afraid because the Roman soldiers that had crucified your boss, your friend, the apostle, the rabbi Jesus, now they're out to get you. That's the way it works with insurrection. When people in political power, first they cut off the head, and then they start going down line, and they start getting rid of everybody in the circle. And Well, after all, Peter and James and John and and Matthew, they'd followed in three years. The word was out. They, They had their own NSA spine going on. How many understand what I'm talking about? They were rightfully afraid, but, but, but there's things that make us afraid. Unless you bury your head in the sand, you think about terrorist attacks. You, you think about a stock market crash. You think about going into the doctor's office when you noticed you had a, a lump and it's not been there before. And every time you take a shower and you, you, you try to pretend it's not, but it's there and you go in and he does a test. And he, he just matter-of-factly, just like I said, my friend killed a, ten, a turkey with a 10-inch beard yesterday, matter of fact. He says, you have cancer. Matter of fact. i tell you, friends, fear is a part of life. I got a text from a friend yesterday, and he told me that one of the kids in my hometown where I, I went to high school, he went to a, a, a prom party, and after the prom, and I mean, everything was great. They had a bus that took the kids to a place. They had a lot of fun. They came back to school probably five in the morning, and he was driving home, and he had a head-on collision with a tree, and it killed him just like that. I mean, if you're a parent, your kids aren't home at 11, 12, and you wake up at one and the light's still on, that's your signal. They're supposed to turn it off, but it's still on and you text and there's no reply. How many know fear is a part of life? Well well, let me tell you how as a Christian you can live and fear is real, but faith is more real. Fear will take you around the neck and faith will make it loose its grip from your neck. Faith is is a door for a God who's bigger than what we're facing to step into our world. And it is the message of the empty tomb today that your fears can be trumped by faith. How many know, listen, how many know someone may play the king of spades, but the ace of spades is yet to be played. And your partner has that ace of spades. Come on, you're not going to make the trick if someone doesn't come to your rescue. But your partner just pulls it out and said, I got this covered. Listen, friends, that's the God that we serve. Several years ago, I had knee surgery, and, you know, it's easy to preach about faith when you're behind the pulpit, but when you're in the hospital and you're wearing this gown that doesn't have a back, you understand what I'm talking about, and and it's a humbling experience. You don't care who sees you go to the... Well, anyway, you've been there, perhaps. It's supposed to be an early morning surgery. Now, look, you may have a good doctor. He may have his certificates on the wall behind me. No, not everybody that goes to sleep wakes up. See, things happen in life sometimes. I want you to stay with me this morning, particularly if you're here because somebody made you come. I want you to listen to me this morning. Sooner or later, you're going to face something that puts you in touch with the edge of your life, what could be the potential edge of your life. Well, it was supposed to be a morning surgery. It's now 5 o'clock, and throughout the day, I've had several little anxiety splatters. You understand what I'm talking about. But the Bible says God is an ever-present help in our time of trouble. And you can turn to God and you can kind of pray yourself through those things. And when I'd pray, fortunately my wife was there. Come on, and it's, it's you need a hand to hold on to. But when the guy comes in with the gurney and says, come on, let go of her hand and now it's time for me. How many know Isaiah 41 10 is still true? Fear not, come on, because I am with you. And, and I'm telling you this morning when you feel all alone, there's one that's bigger, come on, that is there. If you'll learn to reach out to him in the day's like today, that when difficulty comes in life and fear tries to overwhelm you, there's a greater one that stands up and says, get back because that one belongs to me. Come on, give God praise this morning. He's worthy of our praise. I'm telling you, it's real. I'll tell you more about that faith in just a moment. But the second thing I want to tell you about this empty tomb is it's a place where skeptics should pause. It's a place where skeptics should pause. Now, I want to ask you a question. Where did the body go? Where did the body go? The last few generations in America, we have been raised under the worldview of naturalism. Naturalism basically says this. Draw a big circle about everything that happens in the world It's the planets that are there, it's where we came from is there, Uh, it's the laws of gravity that are there, it's everything we see happening, it's every human interaction, it's everything that we can know, feel, see, touch, and taste in this world. But the deal with naturalism is everything is in this circle, there is no God. And you see, we're smart enough, since Darwin introduced us the idea that we came from monkeys, and we began to realize that, well, we really don't need God because we came from some primordial ooze. Uh, perhaps there was a dying planet, and that planet gave us the elements necessary for life, the oxygen, the carbon. But the problem is, is they never tell you what was beyond that dying planet. Come on. They never tell you about the force that's, that was the cause that caused mankind to come from that primordial soup. You see, they have faith, my friends. The atheist has faith. The evolutionists have faith. They believe that it just kind of happened for some reason. But I'm telling you, my friends, is the question that must be addressed, that cannot just be looked over, that cannot be taken for granted. Where is the body of Christ? Now, there's no question historically Christ existed, a man named Jesus Christ. On today's world, some two billion people, at least, by, by, by the volition of their, uh, their, their will and the words of their mouth, acknowledge Christ. He existed. The American Medical Association, in a journal in 1986, an article was written asking the question if a man was crucified as Jesus, would he die? Suggesting of course that he never really died and perhaps he came alive. The, uh, the doctor that wrote the article said without a doubt the medical facts suggest clearly that Jesus would have died before the spear was thrust into his side that went into his lung and pierced his heart. So my question is where did the body go? Not many possibilities. Some would suggest the disciples stole him. That's what the Jews tried to, tried to say. Now, once you think about these Roman soldiers, they were the Navy SEALs of their day. They were these strong men, uh, the most well-equipped and trained army in the world, and this ragtag bunch of disciples with a couple swords between them was supposed to have overwhelmed that army and, and whipped them. I don't think so, but a more pressing question is this. Um, why would they die a martyr's death for a lie that they knew was a lie? Now, every once in a while, a crazy person will do something crazy. Every once in a while, this week, it said it was an airplane that was in the air 40,000 feet. Somebody tried to open the door to get out. But I mean, most people that fly on airplanes don't want to get out at 40,000 feet? I mean, there's nuts out there, okay? But most rational people don't do things like that. These disciples died a martyr's death. Ten of the 11 remaining apostles died a martyr's death. They died. They wouldn't die for a lie that they knew was a lie. I'm telling you, my friend, somehow we have to realize when there's pressures like this and people are arrested and they're pulling out their fingernails and they said, You deny your faith. You tell me where that body of Jesus is. Do you think they couldn't find one Christian that they had tortured that wouldn't, would, wouldn't talk about what happened? Because they all were clustered together, they all lived together. My friend, the disciples didn't do it. How about the Jews? Well, that's crazy. The Jews were the ones that killed him in the first place to protect their power. The Jews were the ones that hired these Roman soldiers. And the Jews were the ones... Listen, on the day of Pentecost, when it came, Peter stands up and preaches the resurrection of Christ. And now thousands are getting saved. If the Jews knew where the body was, they would have exposed it at that point, and Christianity would have died. Because the whole message on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, was about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So you can forget the Jews... Now, the great trump card in all this is those Roman soldiers. Now, listen, if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, that Roman soldier would have to give his life. It's not like today if the head of the IRS will see what happens to Ms. Lerner in the investigations. Usually nothing happens to people in political power. I mean, we live in a world today where states vote on issues, and if one side doesn't like it, they find a judge up the, up the food chain that overdoes the will of the people. So, I mean, we live in a world today where there's oftentimes not justice But if these Roman soldiers lost somebody, they would pay for their life. Now, listen, there's no historical record. If the body was stolen, they'd have put a dragnet out, just like we do in today's world. We had Walmarts just on Friday that were closed in this part of the country. I'll tell you, friends, the FBI was all over that. Homeland Security was all over that. We didn't know a thing about it. If the body of Jesus had truly been stolen, there would have been historical record about Roman soldiers having looked and searched for the body, having quadranted off the area, and they'd have found Jesus. But there is no historical record. I'll tell you, my friends, there's only one logical conclusion for where is the body, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. Come on. Just like he said he was, that he pierced the circle of naturalism, that he declared boldly and loudly that I am the Son of God. Jesus predicted it. He said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life again. People saw him, my friends. And I'll tell you, that veil, that circle of naturalism, should be opened for the consideration if you're a skeptic today. And I know there's people that are far more intelligent than I, that you could research Christian apologetics about the body of Christ. But it gives us pause, my friends, because the empty tomb, we must answer the question where is the body? Because our eternal soul hangs on the answer. Come on, somebody give the Lord a good hand this morning. Now, let me get very personal with you in this next one. The empty tomb is a place where doubters become believers. John chapter 20, verse 25. And as you look into the pages of scripture, there's a lot of doubt surrounding the resurrection. I mean, after all, it's it's not something that happens all the time. I've been a, a Christian pastor over 30 some years. I don't even know how many funerals I've done. I don't know how many visitations I've gone to, but one thing that's been consistent in every one, we went to the funeral and we put the man or woman in the ground and we left them there and they didn't come back. But in this case, something supernatural happened. Doubters are becoming believers because of it. The other disciples told him, and now this is a week after the resurrection, we're talking about Thomas. Jesus appeared on multiple occasions. He appeared at the tomb. He appeared that evening to a group of disciples. And now he appears a week later. The disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas, a good American, a good conservative thinker, a good rationalist, a good reasonable man, who gave more credence to facts and experts than he did the reality of what was before him. Thomas said this, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, unless I put my hand into his side where the spear went, I will not believe. And it's unless you can show me some, some proof. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and, and the doors were locked. But Jesus came and stood among them and said, hi, guys. And I'm telling you, that veil of naturalism is pierced once again because Christ is not bound by the laws that bind us. I mean, if I'm here, I can't be over there. But Jesus can be wherever he wants to be, and he shows up, and he just kind of hangs out. Well, I want to tell you, my friends, I don't care how good their alarm system was. I don't care how thick their walls were. I don't care if they had a gun and they had guard dogs. If Jesus wants to do something, he's going to do it. Oh, this same Jesus, listen, and when he goes in the room, it's interesting that he knew exactly what Thomas had been talking about. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, Thomas, come here. Let me see your finger. And he went, bloop. And it went right through the hole in Jesus' hand where the nail scar was. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And I want you to say this with me. He said, stop doubting and believe. Is it just possible that your belief in Christ is a simple choice? That's not an irrational choice, but that it has logic, it has experience, it has history, but it's a choice? To embrace or reject. I, 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 I need to learn to choose to doubt my doubts. And believe the truth of God's word. Stop doubting and believe. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. And now Jesus speaks of you and I. I told you this will get personal. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now let's talk just a second about this idea about, about our faith. Typically, if you're young in life, you're not much aware of your need for God. If you've grown older in life and you have managed to obtain some wealth, some money, whenever you have money and health, whenever you have a measure of control in life, you're not really aware of your need for God. But I can tell you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, sooner or later, you begin to flirt with the edge of life as you know it. You could walk into the office one day and you could get the pink slip and, and there's no unemployment. I mean, something could stop just, just like that. You work at Hobby Lobby. I don't know what's going to happen with their court case now. The Supreme Court tackles it. But you work at Hobby Lobby. They're saying no to the health insurance because we don't believe you should be forced, based on your religious beliefs, to, to, to provide a, a drugs that would induce an abortion. Well, what if the Supreme Court turns them upside down? I mean, just because a court or a law is made, that doesn't make it a, a right law. There can be laws that are right and laws that are wrong, laws that are just, laws that are unjust for political motivation. But, but your whole world could change just like that. Just like that. But I want to tell you, if your world turns upside down one day, the one who holds the world in his hand can turn it upside down the next day. See? Now, 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 now this is not just preacher talk. Let me, let me get real with you just a minute. Eighteen months ago, my wife went in for a second, a second uh, mammogram Well, how many know when your doctor calls you the next day after an unscheduled test for an unscheduled appointment? It's usually not good news. I remember going to his office. It was a gynecologist right across the street on Moore's Lane. We're sitting in his desk, and just matter-of-factly, he looked at us when he sat down, and he looked straight in her eyes, and he said, You have breast cancer. And for the next five minutes, we asked questions, and he had no answers. Is it in both breasts? I don't know. Am I going to have to have chemo? I don't know. Am I going to have surgery? I don't know. Well, what doctor should I go to? I'm not sure. Here's a couple. You can choose one. Well, what's going to happen? I don't know. I'm telling you, sooner or later, you're going to face things in life that do that. After the first service, a dear friend of mine who's been a friend for many years came up to me and just said, I've been diagnosed with colon cancer. Now, look, we had just planned to hunt not too long ago. Here's my question to you. What do you do when life meets you like that? Do you meet it with faith in God? Or do you meet it with doubts? Do you live in the box of reason and experience? Or are you totally depending on just the best doctor? Come on. Thank God for good doctors in America today. Thank God for quality health care workers. But they're not God. And they're not miracle workers. And sometimes the best lawyer, the best doctor, the best banker cannot solve your problem. But can I tell you, Dr. Jesus can take care of you all of the time. Tell you how faith works. We get out in the parking lot, and when we left their office, all the nurses knew. Yesterday, I was going down 67. It was a funeral, and, and, and I was coming to church, and this funeral procession came, and when you saw the long line of cars with their lights on, every car stopped as if to honor the, one, the, the body of the person that was coming. Well, when we walked down that hallway, it was every nurse stood in the door, and they kept a professional distance, whatever that means, but I could tell that they were identifying, and they cared about Linnell. But we got in the parking lot with no answers whatsoever. I put my arms around her and I said, honey, you're going to be okay because God is not done with you. Now listen, why did I say that? Is that because, is that because I reached in my, in, in my phone and I typed, in, I typed in my astrology for the day and it said today is going to be a good day, therefore? Is that because, and I put my arms around her and I'm rubbing my rabbit's foot? Come on, three times up and said, honey, you rub three times down and let's go rabbit, 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 help, help, help. No. That's the way faith works in everyday life. Faith believes God, no matter what the circumstances say. Now look, our faith here's how our faith began to unfold. Uh, then we were believing God that God would do a supernatural miracle, that God would invade that circle of naturalism, and God would take the cancer away. A miracle would happen and surgery wouldn't be necessary. You say, well, that can't happen. Someone came up to me several weeks ago and said, I have an eight-year-old niece, and she'd had the tests that were done, and the oncologist showed where the cancer was growing on the esophagus, and and, and they went in to the, the surgeon had the child open up, and the surgeon said, well, there's nothing there, (laughs) brings the oncologist into the room with the scan, and they, well, I don't understand this. Now, look, miracles happen, but they don't happen all the time, and they don't happen to everybody, and I can't tell you why. But I can tell you there is a miracle-working God who's a good God, who's a loving God, who cares about us. And when it became clear, though, that, that Linnell, because we asked him, said, before you cut on her, we want you to do another test. I want you to make a place if a miracle happens so she won't have to go farther. But she ended up having the surgery. I don't believe in God anymore. I prayed and God must not be re... No, we didn't do that. When it became clear she was going to get the surgery, we said, Lord, I ask you to bless Lanelle as she goes in, that they get every bit of this cancer, come on, and that she's going to come out of this surgery and she's going to be healthy, whole, and strong, and she gets out of it. I remember when they had the PET scan and we're sitting on the couch in our home. It was done in Baylor. And I mean, you know, that's when you know the nurse is going to call that morning. You don't schedule anything, you don't turkey hunt, you don't work, you don't go anywhere. And I remember when the phone call rang, and she reached out and touched my hand. Come on. And the news came back that, listen, the cancer's limited here. She's okay. It hadn't gone into her liver. It hadn't gone into her lungs or her brain. Come on. That's a, that's a praise of the Lord right there. Amen. See? So, so we felt God. But then you say, well, preacher, what would have happened if they'd have said the cancer's in her bones? What would you have done, preacher, if the cancer had metastasized on her brain? Rather than going out to lunch after Easter, I'd go back home, and there was a Rather than a vibrant woman whose hair is growing back and already is traveling all over the world again, what if she was a frail ghost and gray, and the smell of death is in the room with hospices there? What would you have done then, preacher? I'd have taken her by the hand and said, "Honey, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to quit praying until you take your last breath." But I'd take her by the hand, and I would probably read these verses over her. I would personalize Second Timothy chapter four, verse six. And I'd say, honey, the time of your death is near and tears will be running down my face. You have fought the good fight, you have finished the race, and you have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits you, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give you on the day of his return. You say, how could you do that to a dying wife? Because, listen, even death can't stop the resurrected Lord. Listen, I understand in my Christian worldview, this life is not all there is. This life is a warm-up for eternity. Come on. And the God who created me is the God who will sustain me. But one day I'll take my last breath on this earth, and that day I leave this body and I step into the presence of the Lord. Now, if you want to, you can live with a rabbit's foot. You can live avoiding the number 13. You can live having faith in a dying planet created life on earth with no purpose and no hope. Or you can choose to stop doubting and believe. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to take that simple promise from Jesus, and I'm going to stop doubting, and I'm going to believe. Come on, give the Lord a hand. He's worthy. We're going to close this morning uh, in just a moment. And I'm going to offer prayer for our spiritual lives. Because, listen, I'm thrilled you're here this morning. But I hope your spiritual life keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I hope you're closer to God next week than you were this week. I hope you're living the life God intended you to live. But here's something I know from experience, if I can digress just a moment. Your spiritual life would be better and stronger if you're vitally connected to a local church. Amen. And I'm not recruiting you now, but I'm just telling you a fact. of somebody's been doing this for 30 years, I've watched Christians. You don't have to go to church to go to heaven. But I'll tell you, it makes the journey there a bit easier. To have Christians involved in your life that are helping you, that are encouraging you, picking you up when you're down, challenging you, leading you into a place of worship, opening the Bible before you. By the way, next, uh, next week I'm starting a series called Voices. And it's not about the weird voices that we hear, but it's about prophetic voices from Scripture that speak to us today about the world we're living in. Uh, the first one is about Noah. And Noah is not Russell Crowe, okay? Uh, Noah was a real biblical guy that's different from the movie. And even Jesus talked about Noah. And Jesus said, Noah's speaking to you today. Jesus said, when I come back to this earth, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. So we'll talk about that next week. But but I want to close with this last thought about the, the empty tomb. And just turn me back on for five minutes here. Matthew chapter 26. The empty tomb is a place where our failure gets a second chance. Now, let me say it again. The empty tomb is a place where my failure and your failure gets a second chance. Matthew 26, Jesus is talking to Peter before the crucifixion. And Jesus said this even before his arrest. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Now, Peter was a tough guy. Peter was a natural-born leader. Peter was a guy that was just daring enough if Jesus said, Get out of the boat, and he walked on water. I mean, he was one of those bigger than life kind of leaders. So when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me, Peter said, I'm not either. I'll die with you before I deny you. And if you keep reading the passage, you would see that very thing happened. Pete, Jesus is arrested. They're in the trial. Peter is hiding in the crowd, and a, and a young girl points his finger at Peter and said, You were with Jesus. And Peter said, Not me. And she said a little bit, yeah, I, I, You were. I've seen you in Galilee by the lake when he was preaching. He is not. Well, the Bible said Peter cursed. That's as close as I can come to it today. If I was OCD, I would kick this one too, and then we would have kind of. No, this is not the way this was supposed to end. Uh, uh, where are we going? Okay. And then Peter denies him. But on the third denial when the rooster crowed, get back with me on this. This is a good point. The third time the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter looked at Jesus, and he began to weep. Now think just a minute. When you fail, here's my question. Does God throw us away? If you're wearing an orange jumpsuit in the newspaper, will God throw you away? No. If you're on your multiple marriage, will God throw you away? No. Come on. If you have that thing that happened in your life many decades ago that you're still ashamed of, and you don't feel like God could ever forgive you, can I tell you, Peter's life shows us that God recycles the trash. Come on. <laughs> that, God, that God doesn't get rid of us. But God uses us again. Let me wrap up with this and then we'll pray. Mark 16, verse 5. The women entered the tomb. This was back resurrection. They saw a young man wearing a white robe. But the man said, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He's not here. Now listen to what the angel said. Now go and tell his followers. Jesus had probably thousands of followers. We know 500 at one time saw him. But he singled out Simon Peter, and he said, Go find Peter. Jesus is going into Galilee ahead of you, and you will see him just as he told you. Now listen, here's the message of this, and I'm going to close with this this morning. When we fail, God wants to pick us back up. What you and I feel is we feel shame and condemnation. We feel like we're not worthy anymore. Well, that's why the cross was there. Because there's another big word for failure in the Bible. It's called sin. And see, my sin is my failure to live a righteous life before God. My sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. And it's my sin is the ultimate failure. And can I tell you, what we're celebrating this weekend is God's ultimate act of love, that He forgives people that have failed. Come on. He forgives those that have sinned. He forgives those that have not done the way they were supposed to do. And that's my message to you this morning in closing. Jesus' forgiveness is available to all people. And it's the cross that all of us need because one day we'll stand before God to give an account for our lives. And it's the forgiveness of Christ that will cause Jesus to put his arms around me. Come on and say, this is one of mine. Listen, here's a thought I'll leave you with. When that angel told that woman to go get Peter, Peter didn't have to go. Peter didn't have to respond to God's invitation to come. Well, my friend, the same thing is happening today. Because today, God is giving an invitation by His Holy Spirit through me to you. And it's not to join the church, but it's to get your life right with God. It's to get you on track to live the life God intended you to live. God's invitation is going out to you today to ask God forgiveness of our sins and to commit our life to follow Him. My friends, I think God is talking to many that are here today. And Jesus is asking you to turn and follow Him. He's asking you to walk with Him. He's asking you to begin to believe today, to put your trust in Christ and take that huge step of saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And that's what I'd like to pray about this morning. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me today. I want to get my life right with God. I need God's forgiveness today. I'm tired of the way that I've been living because it's not brought what I'm looking for in life. And I'll tell you, I understand that. I was 19 years of age, life was good for me. But something was missing in life. I was on a scholarship. I was going to college. I was dating cute girls. I had beer in the car. I had all these things. I played ball. But none of that made me happy. It's like after a while, you just fill it up, a bucket with something in it, and it drains out the bottom. Can I tell you, Jesus can plug that hole. You'll never find ultimate happiness in life until God is a part of your life. You'll never find the life that God intended you to live until you're following Jesus Christ. I ask you today, are you here today? And say, Pastor, I'm ready to become a believer today. I'm ready to put my trust in Christ. I want you to pray for me. For some that may be here, it could be the first time you've ever prayed this prayer. For others, you might have gotten away from God. But whatever it was that drew you to church today, can I tell you, that's God's Holy Spirit. It's not the church marketing plan. That's God's Holy Spirit that drew you here. And what you felt today and what you're feeling now is God calling you back to Him. I'd be honored to pray with you today. If you're here today and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to get my life right with God. Lift your hand real boldly today and quickly and say, pray for me. God bless you. And God bless you and you. And you and you. Say, pray for me. God bless you. God bless you. Others, let me see your hand today. I was asking God for 15 people today. Pray for me. God bless you, sir. God bless you. Others, today, God bless you in the back. One, two, three, four. God bless you. Others, I see your hand. God bless you. and God bless you, dear. And God bless you, sir. And God bless you, ma'am. Somebody else. Say, pray for me. Others, say, pray for me. God bless you. I want to get my. God bless you, pal. God bless you when a young man turns to God. I gave my life to Jesus at 19. It's the best thing I ever did. The worst memories I have in my life today was when I was 17, 18, and 19, when I had money and freedom to do what my friends are doing. The things I grapple with today, listen, and the things that I have shame over happened in a period of time when I lived away from God. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ can change all that. Is there anyone else here this morning before we pray? Say, pray for me, Pastor. I need to raise my hand. I want to get right with God. Have I missed anyone today? All right. I want you that lifted your hand. Just come on up and let me just pray for you right now. Come on up, you that lifted your hand. All over the church. Come on up, pal. Bring your friend with you. Come on up. Let us pray with you today. We want to pray with you. We want to give you something that's going to help you. Come on. If you lifted your hand, come on up. If you need to be up here. Say, Pastor, I'm getting my life right with God today. I'm putting my trust in Christ. I'm putting my trust in Christ today, I'm putting my trust in Christ today. I'm getting back on track with God. I've gotten away from God, but I'm coming back to God today. I'm coming back to God today. I'm coming back to God today. I need a bunch of Christians to come up here and help me. Now let me tell you, the Bible says right now, at this very moment, angels in heaven are rejoicing. God's coming in our world. It's why Jesus gave his life for you and for me. And I want to tell you this, friends, living the Christian life, today is a starting place. It's not an ending place. After we pray for you, we want to give you something. This is not like a movie. That you go to a movie and it was good, it was great, and you know, you tell people about it. You send a text message, you should come. But when it's over, it's over. This is a beginning place to live the Christian life. And after we pray, there's going to be some people that, that give you some materials and some books. I want you to read that book. It'll talk to you about being baptized in water, about reading your Bible, about praying about the type of people you need to have in your life. See, this is like a spiritual birth. The Bible calls it being born again. It calls it the new birth. Well, you've got to grow up just like a child goes to the nursery and, and goes to elementary and a teenager in college, and, and then they're a grown man and they're doing something. That's what God has for our lives, and that's what we want to help you with today. We are so proud of you. Come on, give them one more big hand today. We are proud of you. We are proud of you. We are proud of you. They said, this is why we do this, is because we want to see more people go to heaven. That's what it's all about. We're all going to say this prayer together. I want everybody in the room to say it today. Say, dear, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for taking my failures and taking my sins and forgiving them. Jesus, wash my sins away. Wash away my shame. Wash away my guilt. Wash away all the bad things I've done and make me a brand new person. Help me to live the life you created me to live. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my Lord and Savior. Help me to live the life that you want me to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give them one more big hand today. God bless you. God bless every one of you. I prayed a prayer just like that on August 15th, 1976, and I'm telling you, it'll change your life. Pastor Mike is going to help you right up here. They're going to give you something, and uh, it's been our honor that you're here. They're going to help you. We're going to close with one song. Wasn't today a great day? Come on. Wasn't today just a great day? Why don't you stand to your feet with me? We're going to have a closing song. I'm going to have some of my prayer team just linger right over here. If there's anything you heard in the message or maybe you missed the early prayer, but you want to talk to someone, Before you go, you come up and you talk to them. As our prayer team comes, sing it one last time. I love you, and I hope to see you next week.